Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Money, powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. In this episode of the podcast, Giovanni's guest today is Mark Zemmel, CEO of Retia Medical and Digitouch Health. In this episode, Giovanni and Mark discuss the digital health capital raising landscape, raising money for two different companies at the same time, and deploying two different strategies, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Mark Zemmel. Thank you, Mark, for joining us here on MedTech Money, where we demystify raising capital. And so I wanted to say, I appreciate you sharing your stories that are going to be upcoming. But before we get into that, wanted to jump into the reason why we're here. And so I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs, obviously, including yourself, as well as investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no real silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in med tech. And my goal here is that I'd like to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs like yourself and investors and bankers to help those who can benefit from the information and provide it for generations of entrepreneurs and investors to come. So that's why we're here. Um, and what I imagine the audience here listening is gonna be a mixture of experts and novices who have either been there and done that before um, and still optimizing as we get into new and new territory, especially post-COVID, hopefully. Um, and some of these novices, what I'm thinking about is extracting your stories, insights, and advice so that we can share with what I imagine this first-time founder or CEO that has zero clue on what lies ahead of them in terms of their journey on raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And why I specifically wanted to have this discussion with you, Mark, is because um, not only are you an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur of two companies right now, and we're going to get into your introduction of who Mark is, how you led up to where you are now, so your career, um, but and also discussing both of the companies and, and the capital raise that you're in for with both of those companies now. Um, but more specifically, the digital health capital raise landscape. So both of your companies are digital health. Like I said, we'll get into those. Um, but I wanted to really focus this discussion on what is it like to raise capital for digital health? Some of the challenges, some of the nuances versus classical medical devices, et cetera. So thank you for being here again. And I wanted to start with two open-ended questions. My first one being for you, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? I mean, certainly those are the two, cre uh, two key ingredients, right? Um, you know, the more I'm into this, the more that uh, people is, you know, I value even more. I mean, not like I didn't before, but having the right talent helps you uh, attract the resources and talent begets talent, right? A people like to be around A people, right? Um, you know, you don't have the capital, right? You don't have, you know, any wherewithal for certain. Um, I would say the third piece has to be something around, you know, if you want to call it technology or some kind of defensible IP, right? Some specific asset because you're a startup, right? You have to have something that's unbelievably better than what else is out there. Just having money and people is not enough without, you know, it's more than just an idea, right? But an asset um, that you can protect um, and defend, 
right? And build upon that will help you attract the people and the money. So those are the three things that I would put the three I, I, tool. I absolutely love that you say that because I, I've asked that particular question to numerous investors as well as entrepreneurs and, and, Overwhelmingly, everyone agrees that people are incredibly valuable, right? They, they are certainly lifeblood of a medtech startup, and you can't really go anywhere, at least far, without money. So it goes without saying. Um, but I was just reading a book uh, simultaneously with one of my partners. <laughs> On the page, it says, IP and technology. No, I'm sorry. IP is the lifeblood for technology companies. So I just love the fact that you... Um, said that without even being prepared to say that, which was great. So uh, thank you for that. My second one and my second question for you specifically is, you know, you're not only raising money and building a company one time, you're doing it two times simultaneously. Um, and I'd love to know, and we're going to get there next, that story that led you there. But if you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Yeah, so it's funny, you know, Giovanni, when you call me, right, I always say, you know, people say, how are you? And I say, I'm having fun, right? And so the answer is 100% yes, right? Um, look, I worked in uh, Beckman Dickinson for a few years, large company, excellent company. Uh, previous to that, I worked in a startup in capital equipment. Um, I love being in a startup. You know, the, the fact that you're all in a rowboat or a sailboat together, all trying to, you know, um, you know, everybody's all in, right? That 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 the camaraderie, the team that you you build, the ability to craft the team, and I, I say we have a no jerk rule, right? Nobody's bigger than the team, right? We're able to, you know, everybody's all dedicated to that one, you know, mission, right? Uh, of uh, what I call. Um, building a value creation engine, right? When I trained as an engineer, right? So I did my master's at MIT and, you know, it was all about building products. And I was all, you know, excited about that. But as I grew in my career, I said, you know, this business thing is probably interesting. Like I didn't even know the term value proposition until I got to B school, right? And, and understanding how to build an organization to deliver value, right? Um, the, the, I would never trade that for anything. You know, it's, it's unique uh, for every single entity that you work on. The, the decisions that you have to make around, okay, who do I need, you know, uh, as a permanent member versus somebody, a uh, resource externally, you know, uh, versus just hire, uh, ordering something, all those intricacies, um, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Oh, thank you for that insight. And I have to go back to the whole having fun thing. So two, two quick stories for all those listeners out there right now. So every time I call Mark, I say, how's it going? And 99% and of the time when you ask somebody that they say, good, how you doing? Or great, how's it going with you? Those typical answers. And, and, and Mark says, having fun. And, and it always catches me off guard because it's, it's a great response. I wish everyone was so positive, but um, so I had to call that out. Anyway, without further ado, Mark, thank you for answering both those questions, but who are you? And you mentioned that you went to MIT. So you can, you can start from MIT and just how you popped over to being CEO and founder and, and true entrepreneur extraordinaire for two companies now. Yeah, my, one of my mentors at MIT was Alex Slocum who was one of the geniuses there in machine design. And he was all about building machines that make products is sort of this really exciting idea that you make all sorts of things possible by building capital equipment. So he sold me on that. Um, I worked for about 10 years uh, building capital equipment to make uh, microelectronics, you know, like large area LCDs, um, high density chip packages, flexible circuits that go into cell phones or, you know, Game Boys at the time or whatever, right? And um, halfway into there, I moved from, uh, you know, leading the team that built the machine. These are like um, one to $2 million pieces of equipment that are the size of a room, right? And they have a laser and it's, you know, you're in the clean room and the bunny seat and suit and all that. Uh, spend a lot of time in Japan, Taiwan, Korea, you know, and, and it was great, right? 
uh, we did a lot of things, but it started to dawn on me that I wanted to do something, what I would say, more directly impactful to society. And um, I come, came around to the idea of med tech, right? Helping people live longer and, and healthier lives, right? Healthier li uh, lifespan, right? Um, and so I went back, got my MBA from Yale, um, and then I moved over to Beckton Dickinson, right? And really was a fantastic intro into uh, the medical device space, right? And still keep in touch with several, several friends there. Uh, worked in med surge, working with anesthesia uh, on some products they were looking to bring in. Did some work with um, the folks in Utah. We're doing uh, IV catheters, um, you know, hyperdermic syringes, like going from building, you know, onesie twosie machines that were, you know, millions of dollars to, you know, making billions of syringes that they measure in, you know, dollars per thousand, right? It's like the total opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, they had a whole team of people that were focused on the stopper of the syringe. Not just, not the syringe, which has three parts, right? Just the stopper. So you can see, uh, and a bunch of really smart PhDs on that team, by the way. Um, but uh, yeah, so love my time there, but I guess I'm still kind of a startup guy at heart. And um, while I was at Yale, I did some consulting for Michael Block and Karen Pritzker. Uh, you know, the Pritzkers own the Hyatt Hotel. And when I was thinking to leave BD, you know, I called them up and, you know, we had done a lot of due diligence on new technologies, investments, and we just hit it off really well. I helped him do a deal in a biotech uh, investment, um, did the diligence on that. And, and so uh, he offered me the opportunity to start a company that he would fund, Michael, that is. Uh, and and um, so I did. And, uh, and that's right to you. Uh, my strategy there was um, who can fund the smartest, best technology, smartest person I could find, right? And uh, then find the, you know, an expert clinician, right? So you need a business person, a uh, technologist, and, um, and a clinician. Really, that was my three-legged stool to form the company, right? So I get the user and clinical strategy piece from the clinician. You know, I would manage the financial and, you know, all the operational aspects, and then the technologist would you know, make the technology happen. So I partnered with uh, Rama McCamala. He's a professor of bioengineering at Pitt. Uh, he was at Michigan State at the time. Uh, we licensed the technology that, that is the engine behind this monitor, uh, which is a hemodynamic monitor for critically ill. So these are um, patients who are in high-risk surgeries or they are um, uh, in the ICU, you know, for COVID or sepsis or what have you. And they use the information from our monitor to make decisions uh, when the patient's in trouble. And so um, there are some other products out there that are not consistently accurate. Rama showed me his technology and he said, look, this monitor is telling you the patient's fine, that they have enough blood flow when in fact they're you know, going south and his algorithm worked. So I said, I don't need a PhD in statistics, I got it. Uh, so we formed the company. As I say, we were two guys with slides uh, and then we took it, we raised, uh, you know, um, initial capital from the Pritzker family and then follow on. They've been tremendous supporting us through, throughout, uh, all through their family office and, um, and took it through FDA to CE Mark. We have a $20 million pipeline now. I did, you know, over a million in sales last quarter. Uh, we're in the top five hospitals in the U S and several others, uh, leading academic medical centers. And it's been quite a ride. Uh, we're now seeking 15 million in this latest round to, accelerate the sales. And I'm happy to talk more about that. Sure. Um, about three years ago or so, um, Rama showed me um, this other technology he was working on, all in this same area of managing circulation and monitoring um, to monitor blood pressure without a cuff. And I said, wow, that's really cool. And he showed me all you had to do was press a button. So uh, rather than put it this big bulky cuff, um, take something like this big, press your finger against it and for 20 seconds and uh, you got your reading. So I said to them, okay, we got to take this out of academia. You know, academia. It's never going to make it anywhere and put it into a company. 
And so we formed that company, um, got a little seed capital, uh, got an NSF grant. American Heart Association came to us. They invested, um, which, is, which was hard, right? They don't typically do that. Uh, that's an interesting story by itself. Um, and uh, so we're now working on our, what I call our Series A, uh, raising 7 million to take that through FDA clearance. The ball game here is all about clinical accuracy. If you show that you're as accurate as a cuff, right, and, you know, way more convenient, right, um, something you can keep in your pocket, people are going to get that data, and then they'll be more likely to um, take their medication or implement their, um, you know, uh, lifestyle modification. So I could say the analogy is where the Fitbit of blood pressure. And... And this company, I'm going to spoil it. I don't think you mentioned the name. Digitouch. Yes. Digitouch. Okay. So just to give context for both Retia and Digitouch, how would you classify them? Are they a medical device or are they digital health? How how do they get classified? Yeah, we're at the intersection between med tech and digital health, right? So uh, Retia, you know, traditional, you know, you would call it as a patient monitor, but Nowadays, you know, people aren't adding more sensors to patient and more, you know, doodads, right? They need more software and they need more intelligence to make better uh, decisions on care. And that's more digital health, right? Because what you're doing is you're trying to be more precise, right? And you're trying to personalize, or you would say individualize, you know, the interventions, whether it's medication or adjusting the ventilator, Right. And that's what they use our monitor to do. So we're a key input into all the sort of clinical decision guidance uh, software that's out here or all the thing where they're trying to do from the EMR, figuring out, you know, how to predict complications, you know, DeepMind and, you know, some of these other companies, Dacina, they're doing all that. But, you know, it turns out that if you don't know blood flow, right, that's like the foundation right, for preventing complications. Because if you don't have that blood flow to your vital organs, it doesn't matter that you, you know, check the blood pressure, you know, 20 minutes later, you got a creatinine level or something else. You know, the action happened that fast, right? I mean, you stop breathing, you're dead in two minutes, right? I mean, unless you're one of those like free divers, you know, maybe you'll do three minutes, but right, that's what we're talking about here, right? Blood carries oxygen to your vital organs and that's what we're monitoring. Um, so it's definitely that intersection between, you know, a monitor, which you would call traditional med tech, and then adding on the added value of what you call uh, digital health. In the case of Digitouch, it's, you know, even more on the Digitouch, um, the digital health side, right? It's a consumer medical device, right? Monitoring blood pressure, you know, blood pressure, you go to CVS or Walgreens, you can get a cuff for 20 minutes, you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks, right? But why would you buy this? because of the data, because it's so easy to use. And then, you know, now on your phone, right, then you get the data directly from the device to your phone, right? You're now all plugged into tracking the, um, you know, your activity, your stress, your other cardiovascular monitoring, you know, people know everything. You, got, you can get your SpO2, heart rate, respiration rate, heart rate variability. You see all these companies that are doing that right now. Um, blood pressure is the missing piece. And it's the key, it's the most important number for your health, right? What's the number one killer today? Cardiovascular disease. What's the number one parameter that tells you how your cardiovascular health, blood pressure, right? So that's, that's a, um, again, I, I view it as sort of hardware as a service, right? So you have this little thing, it gives you some information and now you implement a service offering around that that helps people manage their hypertension or their cardiovascular health more broadly. And so you, you mentioned the history of what's been invested or where it came from rather for Digitouch. Um, but like you did with Retia, what are you guys raising now and for what? Uh, we're raising 15 million and that's to accelerate sales. You know, uh, we have a small commercial team right now and we're going to replicate all the learnings and the expertise uh, across the U.S. and, you know, similarly uh, expand internationally. Are Retia and Digitouch both regulated systems? Yeah, these are both uh, class two medical devices. They're considered diagnostic computers. 
Um, and so uh, typically uh, they have uh, performance standards. So you have to do a clinical study. Uh, it's not just like one of these predicates where you say, okay, we have the same, you know, LED as this other guy and we're off and running. Okay. So, and have both of them, I know that you mentioned that you're generating revenue on at least one of the companies or if not both. Yeah, this guy's in revenue, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Revenue. So right. you have clearance on that one already. Yeah, we have FDA, we have CE Mark, and you know we're in probably ten countries now in, in Rhodesia. So then, from a investor strategy perspective, and I do want to hear that American Heart Association story um, for Digitouch. But when you're looking to go after these uh, styles of investors, I mean, what genre are you looking in? Meaning. I've heard some that say I invest in medical device, but I don't do diagnostics because sometimes the returns are more challenging. I, I have other ones that say I only do digital health, but um, the med tech stuff, I'm moving more away from that because the timelines and the, the, the cost structure is less than classic digital health. How are you formulating your strategy? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. We're in the midst of it now. And, um, you know, we've gotten the best... Um, well, we've gone out, we made sort of, um, we looked in two buckets. One is what I would call um, financial investors, and the other is uh, what we call strategics. So let me talk about strategics first, right? So obviously, uh, many of your large multinational med tech funds have venture arms, right? And so that's a nice way to get some awareness and also, you know, get their view. And they'll often look to the business unit. Uh, for guidance on there, uh, you know, on the due diligence side. And that's a clear, you know, obvious fit. And it gets you some good feedback also in terms of the marketplace. There's other uh, investors that I think uh, I didn't really, you know, was aware of, but are certainly really uh, good options would be large hospital systems, right? Like your, you know, your Kaiser Permanentes or your Providence or, you know, Ascension, right? Cleveland Clinic has a venture on these um, systems uh, have made investments often into uh, products or companies that make products that they use. So that's a great way to say, here, you guys are already using it and so-and-so loves it, right? Why don't you invest? Um, and uh, so, so those are two categories that, you know, even if you do a deal or you don't do a deal with them, it's good awareness driving for both driving more customers or future, you know, exit opportunities. So that's the strategic side. Uh, on the financial side, you know, my first, you know, you can go through PitchBook or you can get your lists uh, from, uh, you know, Giovanni, right? Gave me a couple <laughs> of nice lists. Um, and, you know, you got to find, you know, who are the people that have led? That's the first thing you got to look for, right? What size check? Um, What's the size check relative to the size of the fund? You know, the, how old is the fund? These kind of details matter um, because, you know, if they haven't made any investments and the fund is more than, you know, four or five years old, you know, good luck. Um, so that's a basic screen. And then, you know, then I look at, I go to their web page individually, you know, one, I've gone and done this now for probably three or 400 firms and look at their portfolio. And is there something like me, right? I really, you know, the Pritzkers um, have been fantastic investors and they're gonna participate in this round, but, you know, it's sort of time to leave the nursery and bring on a med tech focused, you know, fund, right? And so I want somebody who, who is, you know, med tech focused that has done something like what we're doing, that is, understands, uh, you know, selling to a hospital, right? It's a multi-level sale. You know, you're selling to biomed, the nurse, the, uh, the anesthesiologist, you know, you may engage with the surgeon, clinical practice committee, value analysis committee, right? Understanding that whole cycle, understanding what it takes to commercialize the time scale, the ramps in med tech. You want somebody that has a few gray hairs, as I say, or no hair. <laughs> So, so, so we've talked about this concept of good versus bad money, right? And right. sometimes bad money is, it truly is bad money. Other times it's neutral money. And I don't know the history be, behind the Hitzker family that from the Hyatt who's invested in you, but if we call that neutral money, meaning they 
give a great check and it's great, but they're not that med tech focused person or family office or investor. And that's what you're looking for. That concept of good money, meaning they're adding more value beyond simply a check. And that's what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, um, for anybody you want, it's a mini marriage, right? And so you're going to be, you know, in the trenches with these people for three to five years. I wouldn't necessarily, it's all about um, just, you know, the sort of, what I would say, networking connections, because that's a piece too. It's also a lot about the character of the people, you know, are they going to be there for you? Because look, every time I look back over these past 10 years that I've been doing this, you know, there's this sort of roller coaster ride. Sometimes you're, you know, everything's killing it and you're doing great. And other times things mess up and, you know, you got to have a board that's going to be behind you because ultimately things are not always going to work the way that you want. And if they're uh, what I would say, gutless, right. That's going to be a problem. Uh, You know, I, I, you know, the Pritzkers, they've ridden through the wars with me, right. When things went well, when things didn't go well, and uh, that's what you want. And and you've mentioned how you, the Pritzkers, and you mentioned um, once again, American Heart Association, and I know that was for Digitouch, but um, these eclectic style of investors, are you, did you happen to stumble across these because you're an amazing networker or there was always a one degree or two degrees separation? You just happen to know them and be in the right place at the right time? Um, because I don't, I don't hear so much of the, the most classic, like you mentioned, I'm looking for a med tech investor. I'm looking for a health digitech or digital health investor, whatever it may be. Like you have a very eclectic group of investors thus far. Right. I mean, we have other investors in Digitouch. I mentioned the Pritzker family with a couple of small uh, uh, seed funds. Right. And really hit, hit on that. The Pritzkers were went to me, you know, when we started Ray and said, we want to control this company with you. So I felt like it wasn't my job to go out and raise capital for others. When you have a multi-billionaire behind you, your job is to drive value. So I put my head down and did that. Um, that's unusual, right? I do see other family offices that, you know, they have their entrepreneurs that they kind of support. Um, you know, more and more I see, you know, they, they, the many family offices and investors want you to syndicate, right? They don't want to be the only person at the table. Um, so I think that that style of investing is sort of going down. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about the rest of your question around networking and, 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 you know, how I got to them. I got to the Pritzker family through Yale. Um, it was just, you know, they called up Yale one day and they said, send me one of your top MBA students and we wanted them to do some consulting. So I said, okay. Right. I mean, you don't often, you know, it's right place, right time. But then, you know, that just got me in the door, right? I had to then build that relationship. And, you know, uh, obviously we hit it off quite nicely. Um, but, you know, it's sort of like your, your favorite uncle. You know, they want to set you up for success, but, you know, you still got to convince them that it's the right idea uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, the right plan. Um, it's not like, you know, here's a check and go run away. That's not happening. There's a lot of accountability. In fact, family offices in some ways can be the toughest negotiators because they don't have to return money to their fund. They can do whatever they want. So, you know, you're kind of, you know, beholden to making sure they're still satisfied at any time. Yeah. And that uncle analogy was for family offices. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, So circling back around and I've been dying to hear it now, but what's this American Heart Association story and how did they come into Digitouch? Uh, so there's a publication in, um, science translational medicine, uh, about the Digitouch technology. They read it and they called us up and they said, we'd like to help you. Wow. Just like that. So publications matter. Yeah. Uh, getting the word out matters. Um, that's great when they come to you. Right. Um, and it's, it's a larger picture, which is, uh, and I hear this more and more talking to people that you know, there's this idea that investors would like to have heard about you before you reach out to them. And so the more you can do to sort of get your name out, you know, sort of a pre-marketing, right? Whether it is, you know, uh, on LinkedIn, you know, and showing all these great things and, you know, they're following you, right? Not actually talking to you or, um, you know, through any sort of other channels, you know, through the literature, right? People look at the literature, obviously. Um, 
you know, having in the old days a, 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 a trade show, right? Right, where people would see you there. Those so there is, where people can be aware of you. Right? There, there is that human element then that you're saying, like investors, I mean, they don't even have to know a lot about you, but it's just nice for them to even recognize the name or something like that. And however you get that word out through a loudspeaker, it could help you at the negotiation table, at least get there. Right. And you're just always, you know, even when you think you're not raising capital, you're always raising capital. <laughs> and you are the head front and center promoting the company and the mission and the product, you know, uh, all, at, all at the same time. Let me just ask this off topic question. Well, it's not off topic, but from what we've just been saying, <clears throat> when you do raise that round and that money does hit the bank, how long is the celebration period before you either start being like, oh, okay, now I either have to deliver <laughs> or I have to start thinking about the next round? Yeah, it's funny. Um, uh, it's the same with raising capital as it is with uh, selling capital equipment. Um, you know, there isn't this like all of a sudden eureka, like I won the lottery, like moment. What happens is somebody says they're going to invest and then you do a term sheet and then you got yada yada of, uh, you know, security purchase agreement and this. So it all takes like a couple months or longer. Right. Uh, in the case of the Pritzker family, they said, OK, well, I want to do this do the license first with the university and then we'll do the term sheet. And then like, so it was like a year between MSU and then Pritzker's and the lawyers. So there isn't this like, it was like a lot of, okay, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Right. And finally the last 5% when the check hits, right. Um, you know, so you kind of, I don't want to say you're worn out by the process, but it isn't like this, you know, crazy celebration. It's like, okay, let's, let's make something happen. We're, we now got to the starting game. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's the, the fact of the matter, right? I wish you were more like, you know, big things like this, but um, you know, you make time to celebrate successes. You know, you go out to a nice dinner or something like that. Right. Um, you know, you got to keep it fun. Right. You gotta, you gotta have fun, like you were saying before. Um, and then you mentioned the the angels that you have also brought on board. I mean, were those more targeted approach by you, or were those also serendipitous? No, no, no. I went out. Uh, you know, some of the names you gave me, some of the other people that I had worked out, and um, uh, you know, again, getting intros right and uh, running around to a lot of different groups. Um, that's a really sort of by hook or crook method because, you know, it's like, okay, well, I can get, you know, 50 here and 100 there. And, you know, you kind of have to be careful about having too many people uh, because then you're having to do updates, you know, 10 times or 20 times. So you want, you don't want to, I mean, to the extent you can, you try to keep it to a smaller amount of people to manage. Um, in my opinion, it's easier there, but um, it's just kissing a lot of frogs and, you know, showing your story over and over and lighting that fire. Um, so that's the sort of more traditional thing that you've probably seen uh, other people you've talked to talk about. And for both Retia and Digitouch, are you calling them Series A rounds or are they later rounds? Well, Retia is Series C, right? We're, we're fully commercial, we're growth equity, um, whereas was Digitouch is a Series A. Okay. And just because you're running two styles of companies, I think the audience would be interested in hearing this because I, I try to cover it almost independently one by one, but now we have one entrepreneur raising capital for two staged companies. Um, are you having to go after drastically different firms for both Retia and Digitouch? I mean, is it like two jobs? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the reality is that, you know, it, it's sort of impossible to do this long-term and, uh, you know, it, it was just a sort of a, a what happened was this, this technology for Digitouch was so related and the infrastructure we had built was so related, uh, you know, patient monitoring algorithms, that's what we do, that it just made sense to, to spin it out and do that. I have seen other folks that will have, you know, two or three companies that they're sort of incubating, right? Raytheon is now having to leave the incubator. Right. So long term, it, it cannot be this way. Um, 
And soon Digitouch, probably in a year or two, will have to leave the, the incubator and have to have its own independent management team. So um, it's, you know, in the, in the early stages, it's easier to keep these companies and be, you know, what I would say, virtual in a way. You can have a very lean staff. Um, you can do clinical studies and do data analysis with a couple of guys and computer or women, right? And, um, you know, you can be very capital efficient. That's what we did, right? But then when you start to build hardware or you have to build a commercial team, then you really have to put in, you know, a bigger infrastructure. Um, so go ahead, Giovanni. When, when you're running your strategy now, we talked about you you know, sifting through three or 400 firms and looking at their portfolio and that strategy of making sure that you could fit in. So obviously you're taking the time to do that. I've heard a lot of investors say that they feel like they're more of a Gatling gun approach by some entrepreneurs where they're just getting these cold emails. And oftentimes they don't even make sense as to why they're reaching out. And it's very obvious that they hadn't done any homework, right? So uh, the venture capitalists, at least the ones that I've spoken with, make it very clear that do your homework or at least make us feel as though you know why you're reaching out to us. So it sounds like you're doing that. Um, with regards to your approach- Very time consuming, by the way, right? Incredible. I mean, it's very easy to send an e-blast to 500 people Right. But I, I don't think that that's a, the right way to start a relationship. I agree. I agree. And, and so let me just get this quick question out of the way. As a CEO and founder of a couple companies at this point, how do you break up your day? I mean, when you look at your day or your week or your month, I mean, is it that classic raising money 80 percent of the time? Yeah, I mean, raising capital business development is, you know, job one, two and, you know, almost three. Um, you know, we have, you know, you put an infrastructure in place at my management team meetings and the sort of key functional meetings, um, you know, typically on Mondays and we bleed into Tuesday a little bit, but then, you know, the rest of the week it's, you know, getting on zoom, calling people, reaching out, um, networking as best I can. Um, and then, you know, you wrap up with the sales team on Friday and see where everybody is after the field, right? Uh, you hear what's going on and uh, tell everybody how we did that week, you know, your weekly meeting with, with the, you know, the entire company. Um, but yeah, it's mostly, you know, it's funny in the early stages, I was doing a lot myself. So in the seed round, right, um, you know, I did all the market research. I did all the clinical studies, wrote the protocols, right, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I didn't do the algorithm per se, but I was in the algorithm meetings talking about, okay, what about this? What about that? You know, managing the tasks, you know, figuring out, okay, have you thought about this, right? Um, as you move further in the company, you can't do those things, right? Even in the early stage, and it comes back to the three-legged stool, engineering, I know, requires sort of complete uh, dedication, Right. You, you can't be, you know, do an hour here, an hour there. You have to do it for chunks of time. Right. So um, you can't do that long term and run the company. I mean, I don't want to say that definitively. There may be geniuses who are better at it than I do or that maybe work, you know, 120 hours a week. But um, I, I think it's it's better to have somebody you can completely focus on the engineering piece. Um, and, and as you grow, right, then you need that same focus on the marketing, on the clinical, on the you know, regulatory and so on. How long do you, would you say you typically budget for a capital raise? I mean, it, now that you've done this a few times here, I mean, when you go out there and you, you start day one and say, I'm gonna do this because I just finished my last one and done having that great dinner, now on to the next one. Um, how long do you typically budget for a capital raise? In the VC kind of, you know, series A seed stage, you got to look at at least nine to 12 months um, and make sure, you know, you allow a month, month and a half, two months to get your deck together, right? In, in you know, make, don't, don't do it yourself unless you're a real artist. Hire a firm that, you know, is really good at slides and helps you craft it. It has to look professional. Right. Even if it looks semi-professional, right, um, there's, you know, 50 other companies that made that investment that look better than you do. So you want to get that right uh, in the very beginning. 
That makes sense. That's actually really good advice, by the way. I mean, I haven't heard it so eloquently put, but I mean, there is a lot of emphasis put on executive summaries and slide decks and the aesthetics of them. Cause I mean, we've all seen what a bad slide deck looks like um, and it's visibly or emotionally very different than a, a great slide deck. So that makes sense. Um, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, there's two pieces. There's a stake in the sizzle, right? Uh, you have to have a good business. And then the best way to raise capital is to have a good business, right? Uh, no matter how pretty the slides are, but it's really good to have a good business and pretty slides. <laughs> <laughs> and a good story, right? Um, and I want to circle back to the, the corporate investor model that you talked about earlier on. Just demystify this for us real quick. What's your approach or what's the easiest way to get in touch with corporates um, in terms of their divisions, right? I mean, you can go look at top 10, top 100 med tech VCs and Google them up and spend time on looking at their portfolios. And But What's the most efficient way of networking to get in front of corporates? Um, I've tried everything. Uh, so uh, cold emails. I've tried LinkedIn. LinkedIn is fairly good. Uh, they'll usually accept your invite uh, because they want to know if you're in their space. Um, and then um, also we hired an investment banker. You know, sometimes they have relationships. Um I've used my board and my mentors, you know, networking. Don't forget that. I think actually that's the most effective way is to get a warm intro. And people say, oh, the magic warm intro. How are you going to get the warm intro, right? Um, you, it's just like recruiting an employee, right? It's the same kind of thing. You know, you have to have your story and you tell them who you are, you know, and uh, over the time, I've been quite lucky, I would say, to attract some good mentors, right, who've had connections and, and have been um, willing to pay it forward. And typically what I found is somebody was there for them that paid it forward to them, right? And then now they're paying it forward to me, and I'm starting now to try to pay it forward to the next generation, right? I'm not back old yet, but <laughs> the idea is, right, you have to be a, a giver, not just a taker. Um, and, you know, it's one of the reasons I was motivated to do this podcast, right? Oh, thank you. Thank you. And we appreciate it because I'm, I've learned a lot already on this and I still got a couple more questions before I let you go. Um, but also I'm sure that the audience has as well. So thank you for your time again. Um, I want to go back to, you mentioned both Retia and Digitouch are at this cross section between classic med tech and digital health. Going back to that strategy of who you're approaching and looking at their portfolios to see who you um, who you fit or if you're close to anybody so that you can feel more comfortable approaching them directly. What are some of the major pushbacks in your style of technology for all those listening out there who maybe fall in a more clear medical device bucket and you know they're an implantable medical device or a catheter or those ones that are pure digital health and they may be a SaaS platform or pure software to optimize something, but are still regulated. Um, when you look at a diagnostic tool slash digital health slash capital piece of equipment, what are some of the things that investors say to you being like, no, we're not going to invest in because, because, because what are some of those pushbacks? Um, so one thing I would say for, for Raytia and for Digitouch, um, we're more, I would say we're not you know, capital per se is more like hardware as a service, right? So that they're using this information to make decisions. And so uh, it's an ongoing uh, relationship with the customer, right? You know, the, there are companies that sell sort of like, I would say big metal, right? You know, like an MRI machine or, you know, one of these, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars pieces of equipment. And then you know, it's like, okay, see you later. We'll call you when your service contract is up. But today, you know, in this sort of med tech, um, digital health kind of like, you know, overlap space, what hospitals want, what patients want is an ongoing relationship with your organization. And I actually learned something from the guys who started Whoop. I was reading on LinkedIn. They said, uh, uh, you know, if you're not providing continuing value, then you don't deserve to capture continuing value. Um, so I, I think that's an important philosophy about product, right? 
you know, if it's a, you know, here and see you later type of uh, revenue model, that that's not as a, I think where I feel the value of the technology is and where the business model should align because the hospitals value the relationships with our clinical specialists, right? And I know in Digitouch, right? They're gonna value the relationships that they build with our coaches, right? To help them manage their hypertension. And so when, when you're talking about the, the investors that you would approach on that, are some of them saying, I don't invest in that because it is a hardware and we only do the software and we only want the, the data? Nobody wants to do hardware anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's mean, what i was looking it, for yeah i mean it's like you know this many people yeah right so you know you have to have it this way right i mean capital equipment is lumpy right and you know you're going to get a lot of revenue and then no revenue and uh, like you can't design a business that way so why is that by the way I, I think i think the audience should hear that i just want to get this out but now you say no one does hardware anymore and, and even though it's a definitive statement, why is this med tech, you know, when we look back at the 80s and, you know, stents. I don't want to say no one, but very few. Of right? course, of course. I mean, that's why I'm saying, of course, there are people that do it, but it's very, very few. I mean, when you look back at the history of medical devices and, and the med tech industry as a whole, where it came from clunky, very classic mechanical um, devices that went into electromechanical eventually, and now all of a sudden we're in the software digital era, uh, why though? Why don't people want the medical or the, the hardware component anymore? Is there economics behind it or what's the purpose? Yeah, it's the working capital you need and the uncertainty of the capital budgeting uh, process, the long sales cycles. You know, uh, you know, you have something that you can come in and you can fit in the operating budget, right? And it's just that much shorter a sale. Uh, and then you get a more continuous revenue stream that helps support the, the ebbs and flows, um, which I find disappointing because I think sometimes uh, it's a lot nicer to get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars up front than to get it over five years, right? But, it, but as a practical matter, you just need to, um, it's harder to forecast capital sales than a recurring revenue stream. Um, so you kind of have to leave more margin in your working capital to account for that. Mm. And so, uh, you know, investors, and, and again, this is my impression, right? They, they'd rather run you leaner and then grow you as you acquire more customers over time than say, okay, here's a bolus of capital uh, that you can kind of make sure that you have six, nine, 12 months of working capital at any one time to manage the ebbs and flows of the, the capital purchasing cycle. Big companies can do that really, really well. I mean, you look at these med tech companies that have huge capital balance on their balance sheet, you know, lots of lots of cash, right? And no debt. Right. right? And that's why they do that. Right. So their capital equipment by itself, I think, is more of a, a big company gain. Right. Okay. Well, that's and that's good to highlight that it's a bigger company game, which Leads me my my next point is I think it's been over the past I'll say ten days maybe two weeks ten days something like that but I've spoken with four VCs who were classic med tech VCs for a while um, and they've raised one two three they're on their third fourth or fifth fund at this point and when you look at their historical portfolios they were medical devices as we know that right so classic capital equipment catheters implantables whatever they were. And now their fund is 100% digital health. Have you run into any challenges like that where you thought you were going to reach out to somebody that made sense and they're just drifting away towards this software lack of hardware approach? Uh, the bigger problem is they're not in med tech anymore and they've gone all bio. Oh, okay. I encounter a lot more. Okay. Like, oh, no, we're not doing this. We're looking at mRNA or CRISPR or, you know, genomics or something like that. You know, we did med tech three, five, 10 years ago and, you know, we're out. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, there is certainly an interest in digital health. Um, I think that's been more steady, but the okay. bigger problem is, you know, sort of the people are shooting for, you know, grand slams with bio and med tech is, um, you know, I, there are home runs in, in med tech, but there are less of them. I think there are a lot more doubles 
and triples, right? Comparatively to, to biotech, which is more, you know, swing and swing for the fences. Yeah. Two short, sweet questions, and then I'll let you go. First one is, is there money out there? There's plenty of money out there. Okay. Absolutely. You just got to navigate the maze. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a lot more of it later stage. Early stage, very hard to find, but it is there. Okay. And then just leaving off with high philosophical points for all those entrepreneurs listening to us, you know, out of all your experience and years of raising capital, what are some big bulleted philosophical points to the, to those listening on raising capital? What, what, what would you want to tell an early budding entrepreneur about their journey? Um, build the business first, right? Have the right people in the business. Capital doesn't want to fund business creation per se. I mean, if you have one missing piece, that's fine, but don't have three or four missing pieces. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just like raising a, you know, um, getting a job, right? Like, you know, you got to spend 80, 80% of your time networking to get a job, right? Recruiters would do five or 10% and, you know, cold emails, another five or 10%. So it's the same ratio, right? Spend 80% of your time networking, right? To raise capital. Uh, and that'll be the most effective way to do it. Not easy to do, right? If it doesn't come naturally, but you just got to keep working it. Yeah, that's and that's what we hear regularly. I mean, in order to be an entrepreneur, you got to raise capital. You have to love networking. So, Mark, I, I wanted to say thank you very much for your time. This is Mark Zemmel, CEO of both Ritia as well as Digitouch. I think that's a fascinating story that CEO and founder of two different companies. So I loved hearing these stories. Um, this is MedTech Money, where we demystify raising capital. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Thank you, Giovanni. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.